And all the people said, Amen. 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 Thank you. What a blessing. Uh, Jan and choir and Layla, thank you so much. Um, it's a privilege we have to be gathered together. And you and I can take our place before Jesus and humble ourselves and kneel down and surrender and yield to him. We'll observe the supper at the close of our service, but I just want you to know where we're heading all along. It's got to start from start to finish about being gathered around Jesus and acknowledging who he is. And, and what a blessing this morning. Thank you, uh, Brian and Choir. Just thank you so much. Uh, what a real blessing. Um, thank you all. Uh, you were generous uh, in my absence last week. You finally found yourself with the opportunity to hear some good preaching, I heard. Yeah, that's, what I heard. that's the word on the street. But anyway, my colleague, Ben Blackwell, I thanked him. I personally want to mention that publicly to you. Um, uh, my brother, Darius, many of you know, is very seriously ill, and I made a trip the week up before to see him, and then news came that uh, his cir circumstance was very humbling. My sister was in from Florida, and I heard my dad secondhand. I heard him say, I wish I could get all you together one more time. And so anyway, I made my way to, to uh, Fort Worth and saw my brother and my siblings and my dad, and it was a real blessing. And I just want to thank you for your generosity of spirit, and thanks to Ben for taking care of you so, so very ably. Um, the Lord is uh, good. And just thank you as well for your prayers. Uh, so many of you have... Uh, shared this uh, with me, the folks on Wednesday night. Let me just tell you something. That Wednesday night circle that prays, I think they practice at home or something. I mean, I really, there, there's some traction there, and I'm so grateful to join them. And, um, but, uh, but so many across the church family have prayed. And I do want to tell you, um, my brother, uh, uh, since that day on Sunday, um, has been stronger and stronger, and they are talking about things that, well, well, they just weren't talking about uh, even days ago. And so anyway, thank you. It's an answer to prayer for us and uh, uh, just a blessing. And I just, I just have to say to you, thank you, church. Um, when I see you care for one another and when I see your own care extended toward us, I, I just want to say, You've got a makings of a church that can grow and care and minister in the name of Jesus. And I just thank you so much. And Debbie asked me to say as well, just a personal thank you from her this morning about your care and kindness through this whole matter. The Lord is awfully, awfully good to us. Let me gather you this morning around the text from Luke chapter 24. It's a beautiful occasion where Jesus breaks bread. It's a small group, just two so far as we know in the scripture. It's Jesus on the road to Emmaus, the first appearance recorded in the Gospel of Luke of the risen Jesus. But let me uh, set the frame for this as we find our way to Luke, the 24th chapter. Let me ask you, 
it's commonsensical, isn't it, that what we see affects what we think. It shouldn't be so much a surprise, but it's less commonsensical to think of this, that what we think affects what we see. But that is indeed the case. I won't uh, take you through the whole uh, elaborate spiel, but there's just uh, amazing sort of studies uh, again and again. Uh, One that's emerged popularly, again, I think through Jordan Peterson, uh, making it into some of his popular books. Uh, But one famous study uh, shows uh, subjects in this psychological test uh, a video, and they're asked to note certain things in the video. And apparently, according to the theorists, we only have so much power in our eyes to give information, but amazing, uh, apparently it's very f- amazingly flexible. You, in other words, you can look at and, and be instructed to focus on one thing where almost all of your information gathering is focused on a particular task. It was striking when you see this uh, test or the old videos of it. An amazing percentage of people watch this video and they were on the lookout for something particular in the video. And they failed to acknowledge that sometimes the person serving uh, the, at the restaurant, sometimes the waiter was a human being, and at other times it was a person in a gorilla suit. You say, how, how can you miss the fact in a small frame, here's a little table, here's a couple of people gathered at the table, how could you miss the fact that somebody who was in a gorilla suit when they served your drinks or whatever. And I just want to say to you, what we're looking for, what we think there is out there to see, shapes what we do see. And throw into that mystery this remarkable thing that we sometimes, in our failure and in our inability and and in our faithlessness, just don't have the frame of reference, don't have the wherewithal to believe, but God can so touch us and move us that he can open our eyes to see things that we would not see on our own. And some of this is going on in the text that we have before us. And if you would follow along as I read it, I'd be privileged to share with you this morning from this road to Emmaus. Now here's the setting. <clears throat> Two of these uh, disciples, one Cleophas, uh, we don't know the other, they had made their way, they're heading toward Emmaus, it's about seven miles away. Jesus appears there, they perceive that maybe he's just overtaking them in the journey, journeys with them, finds them talking, they're struggling, They remember the things about faith and so on, and all of this talk about Jesus bears their disappointment, their disillusionment. They speak of Jesus in the past tense. They're saddened. We thought he was the one. But the loose paraphrase is this, but he got himself crucified. That seems to be the end of the story and not even the fact that the women folk had found the empty tomb and had reported it back 
to the leadership of the apostles, not even that seems to have awakened their faith. That's how blind they are to the realities. Even that doesn't open their eyes. Jesus now keeps them from seeing who he is. They might recognize him by sight as followers. He keeps them, and mysteriously their blindness continues for a while. And then Jesus seems to have had enough of hearing them rehearse their defeat and their faithlessness and their inability to see and grasp. And he, well, scolds them a little bit and then he informs them. And if you would, look with me, starting there in verse 25. And then he said to them, how foolish you are, how literally sort of something like this, how slow your hearts are to believe that all the, uh, to believe that all, all that the prophets have declared, you, you just can't grasp it. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter, uh, before he enters into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself and all the scriptures. Now, that's one sermon I wish I could have heard. Even though it might be seven miles long, right? Uh, it could be a long sermon, but that's one I'd love to hear. Verse 28, and as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if though he were going on, but they urged him strongly, say, saying, stay with us because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. And so he went in and stayed with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Now, you can't miss those four verses, right? That's Lord's Supper sort of stuff from earlier in the gospel. Although we don't think these two were probably among the 12 that took part in that supper, but somehow the language of that supper is captured here. He gave it to them. And then notice, then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and now he vanishes from their sight. That's like he did in chapter 20 of John. He appears miraculously and then disappears. Doesn't mean he's a ghost. These two gospels are rather stubborn at picturing him very tangible in his written form. You could touch him and he could eat. But despite the mystery of his physical raised body, he's not limited to kind of time and space and he appears to them, and then he disappears to them. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, and while he was opening the scriptures to us? And that same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered there together, and they were saying, The Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he had made known to them, he was made known to them in the breaking 
of bread. This morning, I want to ask you to think with me about this. The Lord Jesus was not stifled by their faithful, faithlessness and their ability to grasp and see and understand. He laments that they are slow, their hearts are slow. But he takes the scripture and he begins to take the measure of it, it seems, and show them again and again that it was necessary for the Son of God to come and to suffer. And then it seems like he's going through the Old Testament. It gives the scope of it. And wow, would we like to have been there. What do you think he did? Do you think he cataloged all these prophecies? These predictive prophecies, are these beautiful pieces of the Old Testament just seem to fit supremely with Jesus? Does he catalog those, lay those out? Is it a long kind of piece with all these different items? Is it the grand picture that he uh, has in mind? Talking about suffering, I kind of wonder if that's not maybe the case. Uh, so much of the story of the Bible is about this people. Uh, God is forming a people uh, for himself to worship, and he chooses this Abram, right, and, and makes him an Abraham, and finally gives him a great nation and brings him along. You remember, though, all along in Abram, way back there to Genesis 12, verse 3, the vision was always global. I'm going to take you, call you, work with you, bless your family. But it's going somewhere. All the families of the earth are going to find their blessing in you, verse 3. And that people that God is forming are the ones who receive the word from God and share the word. But they are called to suffer along the way. Now, unlike Jesus, they're called in part to bear the suffering that's attached to their own wandering and faithlessness and so on. But just because they falter, God does not give up on his project. He keeps them alive and keeps prodding them and pointing them in the direction. Sometimes it's mysterious. He lets them suffer Great things like slavery in Egypt. He lets them suffer some defeats along the way with a remarkable gift of nation and, and, and place and victory and, 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 and sort of this uh, self-rule and worship that they are able to have in Jerusalem. But this story of Israel is somber. Isaiah pictures an Israel and a Messiah a chosen one who will suffer for the sake of God's project. And they will suffer, and by their suffering, other people from outside Israel will see the truth of what Israel is doing. It will draw the nations to them. And where Israel falters in its faithfulness, God sends his very son part of Israel, the truly one from Israel who is faithful to carry on this task and keep this project alive 
and this one is the one who's able to offer the sacrifices that make life and, and, and forgiveness and fellowship and grace possible for you and I. And this is the one who takes up the calling of Israel and becomes the true Israel to carry the story forward. And he bears all the wrongdoing on his, uh, on his own. And he keeps the story going. And he's the one who is held up as the true son of God. And now people from all over the world. You're a church. You're a missionary-minded church. You know this, right? People from all over the world come now to this Messiah and find their place in peace with God. What a sermon. I want to hear that sermon that Jesus preached. He showed how he was there in the Old Testament all along. I think the bits and pieces point to him. I think the whole big thing points to him. And he's the one who makes good on the project of God. And he makes a people for God's own sake. And God comes in his very own self, in his very own expression, in his son, to come and make these things work out when we couldn't make them work. He's there from the beginning of Scripture to the end. He's there. Now, I don't mind giving you a riddle or two. Some of you are frustrated, but I, I just think there's some profound things that you just can't grasp otherwise and I'll just say to you you know how do I know who Jesus is well I know the Bible well how do I know how to make sense out of the Bible well I know who Jesus is right well, that seems to be a little circular for some of you but I think it's where we live we put our picture together of who Jesus is by this experience from the Bible when we get to see its whole scope and its whole direction where it's pointing. He's the thing that the Bible is about. And how do we understand it? We, we understand him, and then we understand the Bible. How do we understand who he is? We understand the Bible. But along the way in your journey in life, there's this wonderful experience where God reveals himself to you. And everyone here who's invited to take the supper, any follower of Christ is invited to take this supper. But if you're a follower of Christ, somewhere along the way, you had this experience where you couldn't see and you couldn't put it together and you didn't get who Jesus is and what the fuss was about and you just couldn't put it all together. got a piece here and a piece there. And maybe you had the blessing to be brought in to the experience of Christian worship. And somewhere along the way, Jesus opened your eyes. And you could see what you couldn't see before. And the supper that we take this morning was the occasion in this very small supper, just the two of them, right? But when they see Jesus breaking the bread and they've heard the story all along, now their eyes are opened. I'm not sure what the significance of this breaking the bread was. 
I won't elaborate a lot of theories. I'll just say to you somehow what we celebrate today and the breaking of Jesus, uh, Je Jesus breaking the bread with the two brothers there on the road to Emmaus, I just want to say to you, I think somehow it captured and pictured this whole idea of the story unfolding and Jesus' centrality of it. And the fact that we turn to Jesus and we remember his body broken and we remember his blood poured out. And these are the things that kind of move us and they awaken us. And we, when we ponder these and we receive these, our eyes regain the clarity that they have had before in faith when we get lost and distracted. And we begin to see things because this supper so beautifully pictures this. This story of faith that could have broke down anywhere along the way when we are faithless and so on. It keeps going because there's this remarkable faithful Jesus. I wouldn't be in this story. I wouldn't be welcomed into this grand story made a part of it if it were left to me. And I acknowledge that. I get in and I share in its grandeur and I share in a new destiny. I share in a new identity. I share in the power of God to transform me. I share in all these things and all these great gifts. Not because I have the strength and all to do it, but because this one was faithful to come and do these things for us that we could not do ourselves. And the story of God goes on this day not because of your strength or my strength. It goes on because of his great love and sacrifice. And somehow what we do today when we take the bread and drink the cup is somehow the bow that ties the story of God all together. He's at the heart of it. His gift is at the heart of it. It goes on because that he is faithful when I falter and when I fail again and again. I learn to be faithful because he opens my eyes and lets me see and draws me into the story. That's all the goodness of God. This morning, there's someone here perhaps, and you've been on the fringe of the Christian story. You've been hearing about this. You're in church. You've probably heard something about it along the way, but you're not all in. You've never embraced this one. And I just say today, today is the day. Let your eyes be open and your heart be open and embrace faithful God and join the great chorus of God. Join this church family. Some of you are led to join this place this morning. You join this place. You join with them and you join in the journey of God. You celebrate your place in the destiny of God and the great story of God as it goes forward. But let's just have this one understanding. You didn't get here on your own. You got here because of the faithfulness of this one we remember today, the Son of God, Jesus. For those of you who have walked the journey of faith, you're only here because your eyes were opened, right? 
This morning, I want you to be renewed in your vision and your clarity and your priority about life and living and church and service and being part of the great privilege to know God. Let's take this supper, but take it with eyes wide open to the goodness and grandeur of God and the privilege to know him and the privilege to be swept into his grace and his love. How humbling it is to think clearly about what we're doing when we stop to remember and participate in this great gift. Let's be alert. Eyes wide open. Humbled hearts. Bowed knees. That's the only way to go forward. Gracious Father, would you bless us this day? Lord, help us uh, during our time of decisions. Move us to respond as you might like. Help us as we observe the supper. And Lord, may we see with clarity the grandeur and goodness of your gift. We pray this in Jesus' name.